The following radio play is a creative interpretation meant to prepare the friends for the words of the master. Many accounts of Abdul Baha's journey are available. As a small personal initiative by a group of Baha'i friends, we hope to do our best to bring you accurate, informative information, but do not claim to be an authoritative source. Your morning post has arrived. Thank you. Dearest friends, I do not know if you have heard about our beloved masters coming to Archdeacon Wilberforce's church, St. John's Westminster, last Sunday evening. So in case you have not, I will tell you about it. How wonderful it all was. To begin with, I have never heard a service conducted as Archdeacon Wilberforce conducted this one. His intercessions were real intercessions and reminded one of our healing prayers rather than one of the usual formal church prayers. One felt the spirit in our midst. Then, after he had given a short address, he said that Abdu'l-Bahá, the great Persian teacher, was coming to address us tonight and went to fetch him from the vestry. He conducted the dear one up the chancel steps to where a chair was placed for him, in full view, and when he was seated, said, Rudyard Kipling has said, East is East and West is West, and they twain never shall meet. But I say they can and do meet on the common ground of love, and here is the proof. Look at our wonderful guest of tonight, who has suffered 40 years imprisonment for the sake of humanity. Look at those hands which have felt the chains, those feet which have endured the jives because of his message of love and unity to all peoples. And now he is free and has come to us from the East to bring that message. Oh, pray that God's blessing may descend upon him. Send out vibrations of love to meet the Spirit of God who is in our midst. You will know how we sent out all our love to meet him. And I do not think there were many dry eyes. How glorious he looked. All the lines of pain and weariness were gone from that beloved face. Truly, he shone with a beauty not of earth. One felt that he was able to 
unveil because of the heavenly atmosphere surrounding him. I had prayed to see his divinity, and now I saw it and was almost afraid. Then he spoke and prayed for us, after which the archdeacon read the translation, saying, I would, I could reproduce the musical inflections of the master's voice. And when he had finished, the master chanted a benediction. I had so longed to hear him chant. I little thought I should do so here in a church. Thank God that at least two of Christ's churches have been found worthy to receive him. Then the archdeacon took him reverently by the hand and conducted him down the aisle, saying as he did so, We do not speak his language, nor he ours, but for the angels of God there is no Babel. It was a scene which none of us will ever forget. Your spiritual sister, Dorothy Hodgson. You're listening to the Journey West podcast, dedicated to following the travels of Abdul Baha in the West. Dear friends, we're so happy you've joined us again on our journey to the West. We want to thank you all for your words of encouragement and look forward to sharing in this experience with you. Which reminds me, how's everyone doing with turning these ideas into actions? You're right. Every podcast, we do discuss Abdu'l-Baha's talks and their implications for today. But we need to hear from you, the listeners. Mary and I really want to take our blog to the next level. I've personally worked in media for a while and feel like it can be a bit passive. So I want you to remember that you're coming along with us, but not just for the ride. Jump in the driver's seat, guys, and let us know your stories and experiences. Even send us your photos of how your community is commemorating these historical events. But let's get back to the St. John's talk. This week's reading will be read by Anna Kostelitz. Discourse of Abdu'l-Baha at St. John's, Westminster, September 17, 1911. O noble friends, O seekers for the kingdom of God, man all over the world is seeking for God. All that exists is God. But the reality of divinity is holy above all understanding. The pictures of divinity that come to our mind are the product of our fancy. They exist in the realm of our imagination. They are not adequate to the truth. Truth, in its essence, cannot be put into words. Divinity cannot be comprehended because it is comprehending. Man, who also has a real existence, is comprehended by God. Therefore, the divinity which man can understand is partial. It is not complete. Divinity is actual truth and real existence and not any representation of it. Divinity contains all and is not contained. Although the mineral, vegetable, animal, and man all have actual being, yet the mineral has no knowledge of the vegetable. It cannot comprehend it. It cannot imagine nor understand it. 
It is the same with the vegetable. Any progress it may make, however highly it may become developed, it will never apprehend the animal nor understand it. It is, so to speak, without news of it. It has no ears, no sight, no understanding. It is the same with the animal. However much it may progress in its own kingdom, however refined its feelings may become, it will have no real notion of the world of man or of his special intellectual faculties. The animal cannot understand the roundness of the earth, nor its motion in space, nor the central position of the sun, nor can it imagine such a thing as the all-pervading ether. Although the mineral, vegetable, animal, and man himself are actual beings, the difference between their kingdoms prevents members of the lower degree from comprehending the essence and nature of those of the superior degree. This being so, how can the temporal and phenomenal comprehend the Lord of hosts? It is clear that this is impossible. But the essence of divinity, the sun of truth, shines forth upon all horizons and is spreading its rays upon all things. Each creature is the recipient of some portion of that power. And man, who contains the perfection of the mineral, the vegetable, and animal, as well as his own distinctive qualities, has become the noblest of created beings. It stands written that he is made in the image of God. Mysteries that were hidden he discovers and secrets that were concealed, he brings into the light. By science and by art, he brings hidden powers into the region of the visible world. Man perceives the hidden law in created things and cooperates with it. Lastly, the perfect man, the prophet, is one who is transfigured, one who has the purity and clearness of a perfect mirror one who reflects the Son of Truth. Of such a one, of such a prophet and messenger, we can say that the light of divinity with the heavenly perfections dwells in him. If we claim that the sun is seen in the mirror, we do not mean that the sun itself has descended from the holy heights of his heaven and entered into the mirror. This is impossible. The divine nature is seen in the manifestations and its light and splendor are visible in extreme glory. Therefore, men have always been taught and led by the prophets of God. The prophets of God are the mediators of God. All the prophets and messengers have come from one Holy Spirit and bear the message of God fitted to the age in which they appear. The one light is in them, and they are one with each other. But the eternal does not become phenomenal. Neither can the phenomenal become eternal. St. Paul, the great apostle, said, We all, with open face beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, as by the Spirit of the Lord. O God the Forgiver, O Heavenly Educator, this assembly is adorned with the mention of thy holy name. Thy children turn their face towards thy kingdom. Hearts are made happy and souls are comforted. Merciful God, Cause us to repent our shortcomings. Accept us in thy heavenly kingdom, and give unto us an abode where there shall be no error. Give us peace, give us knowledge, and open unto us the gates of thy heaven. Thou art the giver of all. Thou art the forgiver. Thou art the merciful. Amen.
According to the book Abdu'l-Bahá in London, the congregation was profoundly moved, and following the archdeacon's example, knelt to receive the blessing of the servant of God. The hymn, O God, Our Help in Ages Past, was sung by the entire assembly standing. As Abdu'l-Bahá and the archdeacon passed down the aisle to the vestry hand in hand. Outside the church, Salvationists were holding their meeting, and Abdu'l-Bahá was deeply impressed and touched at the sight of the men, women, and children gathered together in the night at the street corner, praying and singing. What an amazing talk. Hearing the Archdeacon's kindness and how the whole church spilled into the street, singing and praying gave me chills. I know. Imagine how Abdu'l-Bahá must have felt seeing all of these people gathered and united there to praise God. Let's go on to the round table to hear what some of the friends thought about the talk. Joining us this week are Nathan, Tara, and Ian. Hello, my name is Nathan, and I'm a software engineer. I'm Tara, and I'm a writer. Hi, I'm Ian, and I'm a journalist. So I, I think what really strikes me when I think about this talk is, is the fact that, you know, if you explore the, the history of, of divinity, what, what really came about was something that was quite transcendent, something that was very striking and obvious. You have these really immaculately built churches. You have the resources of a community going into, into creating something really beautiful. And it becomes very apparent very easily. You know, there's a, certain, there's a sense of power, but there's also a sense of, you know, with dominance, which you get with the clergy. And then you do have this confusion of, of divinity. Is the clergy divine? You know, what's beyond the clergy? All these sorts of things. So then people get very confused. And hence, you know, in the history of painting and all of these things, you get a lot of these strange interpretations of the idea of divinity, like representing a picture of divinity. So now in this modern time, now that we all have access to technology and we're all able to represent it a bit better ourselves and have our own voices, it makes it more complex, but all the more important that this sort of idea is discussed. And I would say that we need to train ourselves and, I don't know, in our education system, we just need to train ourselves in being able to have, to represent divinity in a responsible way because there's so many avenues we can take to to show in a visual way this very elevated matter. It says, the pictures of divinity that come to our mind are the product of our fancy. And just this word fancy, and then later he refers to um, some our ideas of divinity are a product for imagination. It makes you realize that it's not it's not something real. And so we need to we need to recognize that and be conscious of it that as much as we strive to define what is divine, um, we will never be able to do that in a whole and comprehensive way. I find it quite interesting that this talk brings up questions, at least questions in my mind, about understanding. Um, What can we understand and what can't we understand? What does it mean to say that man has a real existence but there are parts of divinity which man can't understand, uh, that man's understanding is partial, not complete. Going off on what you say about understanding, it seems that man's state in, in this life is continually striving to increase his consciousness and his understanding 
of the world around him. And in doing that, you're striving to understand divinity. You're striving to create a fuller picture of it, but you need to know that you will never achieve that, which is, I mean, it's. A, I guess it can be a difficult concept to live with, depending on who you are. It's one of the things which, you know, again, people in any society who are trying to advance a civilization really struggle with because everyone tries to take on these big questions, but they are just big questions that everyone has to deal with. So, you know, if you think that you've defined it, then maybe here it's speaking about the fact you might have fooled yourself and you might have deceived yourself in thinking, oh, I, I have this great explanation. This is the end of it. So this is is a wonderful kind of passage which really opens up that idea that, yeah, man is always striving and moving forward and has a reason to do so, which there's always more to learn. So therefore, if you look at it on that level, it becomes very exciting. I've also heard that when you define a concept, it immediately limits that concept. And some it's almost like you're free... It takes away from the freedom of what that could be. Um, so there's a certain blessing in, in, in knowing that we'll be able to eternally um, increase our, our understanding. Yeah, I mean, you, you, see, you see in a lot, of, um, a lot of art that's to do with religion, you will see that there's a concept of incompleteness built into a lot of, a lot of it. That they, In certain buildings, they will you know, put one pillar upside down and always sort of making reference to the fact that what they have made is incomplete, what God is complete, and what they do is incomplete. It's only a part of the picture. Therefore, you know, thinking about society on that level, making reference to society, not being so individualistic, which is a time we find ourselves in now where people kind of go about these things. But even that it's, you know, inbuilt in those sort of pieces shows that people have that idea of their own limitations, which in a way is a beautiful thing because... In understanding your limitations, you then go on to sort of really excel at what it is that you're supposed to do. You know your station. I sometimes wonder when I engage with concepts like this, um, how similar it is to Plato's, like the Platonic forms. Um, what is a table, you know? Is a table this thing in front of me or is a table a concept or a, the truth of a table, something that lives and exists and c beyond what we see in the everyday world? In fact, anything that we create or anything that is created is not going to be that ideal table. It's not going to be one of these forms. So can we ever truly say that we understand that even the ideal concept of table, much less the ideal concept or the true reality of God? Well, it's definitely a very important mindset to have because often as a, as a child, you can be trained out of it through what they call education, but in academia or in school, you can kind of lose that sense, which is a very free sense, which is all explore, always exploring what is that table and how, how do I understand it, how do I relate to it, how do I explore it? And, and you sort of you see that energy that children have. It's something, you know, very much to be, to be thought about, to be inspired by, really. And also, when man knows his station, it means man can really know what he's supposed to do, what his mission is, and I cannot get confused with what an animal is. Once man's able to separate the idea of a man and an animal, therefore can, can act more nobly, can do more noble things and think about compassion and all of these virtues, all of these things that, that are so important for our civilization. This idea of the animal kind of versus the man uh, is something that I've, I've definitely heard or had some discussions with some of my friends about. And, um, you know, because it's, it's a very tempting or appealing idea, I think, to believe that man is just an animal. Um, to say that everything that we do is kind of defined or described by these things. Um, but at the end of the day, 
some people I, I've occasionally heard that the things that are sort of we associate with man occasionally, uh, or f- I guess from this talk, um, the example is like the roundness of the earth, uh, the earth's motion in space. These are things that animals could not comprehend. And um, it's interesting to say like, again, what is it that makes us human? Is this, uh, is it these, are, is it these additional things? Is it these additional sort of cap- capabilities that we don't have that sort of we can get over this entire argument of man versus human if we just say what is animal is of the animal, the, that the man will have that as well. But then the additional things are, are sort of one of the, one aspect of the station of man. Maybe part of what puts, the, puts man apart from, from animals is the ability to have a consciousness of what is outside their immediate realm. So even though we don't understand what's beyond, we still are able to accept that there is something there. So this really seems to say to me, it's it's really talking about you know teaching and knowledge that you can you can have knowledge of something, and this is trying to relate to us that this knowledge is being passed on by by you know manifestations of God or prophets of God, as people might refer to it, are really sort of you know these divine reflections from this sun, which is this source of you know energy and life. So in a, in a very simple and beautiful way, it's kind of giving us this this idea of a mirror. And if you take the idea of the mirror even further, you know, as a journalist, I would say often you can see, you know, that the media itself is kind of like a mirror for society where this, it, it gives out information. Now, unfortunately, to, to take one step further, the mirror isn't always so clean. You know, there are a lot of problems with different ways people produce media. But if we go back then to these divine teachings, this is something, this concept, it is quite, you know, immense is this idea of a perfect mirror, you know, the, the mirror that everyone must look to. I, I mean, I think it's something that, one thing that's often confused is that the prophet of God is the essence of God, which is not the case. This word is often associated with the prophet, and it's not the case. So it's important to know that and to at the same time recognize that these, um, these individuals that are sent by God are separate and have a, that, a certain understanding of divinity that is beyond what the average human being possesses. The prophets of God are this intermediary that bring us a link to the divine. It's a direct link to the divine, I would say. And it's that, I don't know if I would say it's a bridge, because you can't exactly, you can't move toward to the divine, but. We can take the example that Abdu'l-Bahá gives in this talk, uh, that of the sun. That the sun is in heaven, um, or as we know it now, it's in the sky and far away from us. Um, and that it doesn't require, in order to know what sunlight is or to feel the warmth of sunlight, it doesn't require the sun to come to the earth. It doesn't require the, that actual burning ball of gases to descend and, and physically touch or physically be there to still be warmth, warmed by it or warm, to feel the warmth from it. And to take it even a step further, if you're in a house you, or even in, in an in area with a bunch of trees, you're shaded from the sun, but if a mirror is placed sort of far away, you'll be able to see that light and still feel the, still feel the warmth even though you're now not only sort of not directly is, are this, is the sunlight hitting you, it's being indirectly reflected from this mirror. So I think that we get this concept or this idea 
that you can have a divinity, something that is entirely unknowable, entirely unreachable, that doesn't require this uh, divinity to come and approach humanity, but we can still get a sense of it or understand portions of it while still acknowledging that that's not the thing itself. And again, to take this mirror analogy, it works, I think, so wonderfully because I can quite easily understand the idea that I can set up two, three, four, even five mirrors and point them all to the one same sun and understand that that is one sun. That even though these are physical, physically different mirrors, that the thing that I'm drawn to, the thing that really is attracting me or that I, I'm sort of, what I'm trying to really get out of that is not what does the mirror look like, but I really want to know what, what is the sun. And if the divine nature is seen in the manifestations of God, then that's what we should turn to. This is the source of warmth. That's what we should turn to in establishing our societies and creating our communities. And that's what the example that you pointed out with, the, with America, for one, although we need some work. Part of the talk that talks about the fact that all prophets and messengers have come from the one Holy Spirit and bear the message of God fitted into the age into which in which they appear, I think is, is fascinating to me that, um, that it, is still, it is still God, it is still um, divine teachings, but that uh, it is relative. It's relative to the age that it's in. It's not something that's going to be absolute in the way that it's delivered to us. The fundamental truths remain absolute, though, right? Certainly. And really then you have to ask yourself, what, what does that mean and what, what is its application? So once you have knowledge, what is your next step? You know, what action do you take with this, this sort of knowledge? In, in society, really, you can see that people are very concerned with, you know, stories and narratives and origins. You know, the, the conception of, of society is often woven into the idea of beauty it's not always a discussion people have, but it's really something people make reference to and work toward. You know, if you think about why people build cities and the way people build cities and there's architecture involved and, you know, the reason why governments come together and try to progress things is really they create order and, you know, there's a there's a beauty in order. It's, it's all part of this concept uh, of beauty. So we can see from the prophets of God that we have this idea of, of something of something so beautiful and this inspiration causes people then to take social action so in other words one of the main things which Jesus Christ did was actually to promote education you know one of the one of the main missions of all the the early christians and it still is today but one of the main things that they did in in a lot of the countries they were is that they set up schools and in setting up those schools, they really seeded a nation. You know, everything is based around literacy now. And that literacy was created through this sort of charitable work. It wasn't initially a company. It wasn't actually a profit-making venture, although that's what we see now. That's part of our reality. But we're kind of returning to that now where we can see a lot of these not-for-profit companies, a lot of these charities, a lot of these non-governmental organizations, and even people obviously working in governments with good intent, are, are moving towards this more beautiful, ordered world. And they're all inspired by these ideas that have, that have come into our society through religion initially, but then kind of put into the mix in different ways and interpreted and spread out. And the real key now 
is how does everyone, both secular, religious, non-religious, agnostic, how does everyone interact together? How does everyone become unified? Because everyone has all of these different ideas. So one of one of our our main missions now is to be able to create an environment which is conducive to, to these sorts of discussions and is also tolerant of a diversity of ideas and approaches and, you know, union diversity. I think that ties in just absolutely wonderfully with this idea of making sure that we're not attached to our, any sort of constructs of our idol fancy. You know, that, that the things that I sort of believe, um, I acknowledge that this is just something I'm building in my head. It has no real existence if it's just an idea. It only sort of gains a real existence when I do something with that idea and actually ch- sort of change something. And that this is a way that we can sort of help facilitate these types of discussions is by, by focusing a bit more on what can we really do because you can talk sort of all day and that, that's great and wonderful. But um, if you are not tying that back to something that really exists, uh, then what use is it? One thing I was going to say, you talk about people of all different persuasions coming together and working in unity to the working in unity. And you mention um, religious people, agnostics, humanitarians. And I'm interested in how that um, works when you're thinking that everyone should be turning towards this one light, towards this, these, uh, this example of the divine nature that's seen in the prophets that have come over the ages. So will somebody who is an agnostic or an atheist accept that idea that we should all turn in unity towards this source of light? Because that's my idea of what our unifying center is. I think one of the things which can stop people coming together is their their two being being superstitious. Uh, you can be superstitious if you're religious about, you know, people that you don't know and that are foreign to you. You can also be superstitious if you're agnostic or atheist about people who are religious. You can say things about people who are Muslim or Christian, you know, things not really founded in fact. So one of, one of the main issues with sort of gathering or unifying for the sake of society, regardless of your belief, because if you believe you want to advance society coming from your perspective is you really have to remove a lot of these prejudices and you have to identify them, that, that, that both that you have and take action, you know, educate yourself. And also, you have to put yourself through experiences where you're, you're dealing with, with diverse situations, with, with people who are coming from different perspectives, because that actually strengthens your intellect, strengthens your understanding of what you're doing. So I think you have to look at the strengths and the reasons, in fact, that people do create a society. Because in a lot of ways, what, why, why is it that we evolve? Why have we evolved to live in cities and be around other people? Because we could just as easily be meeting our physical needs and all of these things in some tribe somewhere. There's, there's no need to go beyond that. But if there's something that's all driving us and we understand it in different ways, we need to find a sort of a common language and a, and, a, and a common faith. Now, that's why if we're talking about divinity, we, we might all understand it differently. We don't have to think that the clergy limits the concepts of divinity just because they have pictures of Jesus or all of these things. Those are just idols, essentially, that have been created through sort of dogmatic worship. 
But you need to distinguish that from actual religion because religion itself, the word religion, just means that people are bound together. You know, like the term, the word ligament, religion is just something that, that ties people together. So even the concept of the word religion is so limited and uh, sort of misunderstood. The, the very fact that people come together and they do things together is in itself a kind of religious activity. And really that's the beauty of Abdu'l-Bahá's journey to the West. He really did not limit himself from... Or he, Abdu'l-Bahá visited all segments of society and... At that time, this was really revolutionary, I think, to have this man from the East who is, you know, in the traditional garb, who has a turban, a beard, and he brings himself and puts himself in a situation where um, he's not familiar with their culture, their religion, their customs, and yet um, there's such love and there's such a common purpose, really. He, in this, this talk was delivered at Westminster and you, you can see that what he's saying is in line with the beliefs of um, the archdeacon and his followers. So I think he's trying to set the example. Walk the walk. That's it for this week's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Special thanks to Nancy for reading the letter from Dorothy Hodgson. As well as Nathan Lewis, Ian Lysett, Tara Hediadzadeh, Ivan Mihotsi and Kevin Cook for contributing. Don't forget to jump in the driver's seat and email us your stories of inspiration, thoughts on the talks, and ways you and your community are commemorating the travels of Abdu'l-Bahá. The email is info at thejourneywest.org, or you can go to the contact page at the blog. Have a great day, everyone. Bye! <laughs> If you'd like more information about Abdu'l-Bahá's travels in the West, please visit our site at www.thejourneywest.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at The Journey West.